Hi everybody, I'm Cindy Mooring, the Founder and Executive Chair of the Business Integrity Leadership Initiative at the Sam M. Walton College of Business. And this is The Biz, the Business Integrity School podcast. Here, we talk about applying ethics, integrity, and courageous leadership in business, education, and most importantly, your life today. I've had nearly 30 years of real-world experience as a senior executive, so if you're looking for practical tips from a business pro who's actually been there, then this is the podcast for you. Welcome. Let's get started. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Biz. And today we are fortunate to have with us Professor Andy Stark. Hi, Andy. Hi, Cindy. How are you? I'm great. It is so good to see you, even if it is remote. Professor Andy Stark is a professor of strategic management at the University of Toronto. So we have another uh, international view here of the topic we're gonna talk about today. He has cross appointments to the strategic management area at Rotman School of Management and the Department of Political Science. Andy draws on normative theory for much of his research, political, moral, and legal theory to analyze controversial public issues. Andy's the author of several books, including Conflict of Interest in American Public Life, The Limits of Medicine, Drawing the Line, Public and Private in America, and The Consolations of Mortality, Making Sense of, of Death. Wow. His articles have appeared in American Political Science Review, Harvard Business Review, and the Wall Street Journal, among others. And in fact, we're going to be discussing uh, today one of Andy's articles that is the, really the topic of season two here called What's the, Fu- What's the Matter with Business Ethics? Andy's also been a guest scholar at Brookings Institute, and he's a it has been a policy advisor in the office of the Prime Minister of Canada, which that also sounds really interesting. I'm gonna have to ask you a question about that, but it is a real honor to have you here today. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. I'm looking forward to it. So I want to jump right in there. Being a, a policy advisor for the Prime Minister in Canada, give us just a snippet of what that was like. Well, it was exciting and interesting. I learned a lot. Uh, I uh, was kind of the apex of an inverted pyramid is how I put it. When I worked in the prime minister's office, there were three or four senior advisors and I was the junior person uh-huh. for all of them for a uh-huh. period of time. And um, it, it, uh, it uh, dealt with all sorts of constitutional and legal and social policy and economic policy issues. And it was it was, uh, it was quite extraordinary. Um, I learned a, a fair bit about bureaucratic politics uh, in the course of that. Um, uh, I learned about, uh, you know, some of the advantages of, uh, I noticed that my senior colleagues uh, who were at the prime minister's ear more frequently than I ever would have, yeah. um, were obviously able to influence him more than I ever could, but they also were told what to do by him more than I ever was because they had that access. Whereas I didn't have the same access or the same influence. But on the other hand, he wasn't telling me what to do. So I had a little more leeway than um, some, even some of my senior colleagues occasionally. Yeah. So I, I, I encountered all sorts of little um, wrinkles like that of organizational life that I, I um, took with me uh, when, I, when I left. What a great way to learn, though. That is just, that's a, that was, I'm sure just, it was like soaking it all in and it was. figuring things out yeah. and yeah. lots of things yeah. you learn explicitly, but implicitly too, I'm sure, just by being Absolutely. there. 
Well, Andy, you wrote this um, intriguing article in the Wall Street Journal about, gosh, I don't know, 26 years ago now called What's the Matter with Business Ethics? And um, it has intrigued me because uh, I, I think a lot has been done since then. And it's a great opportunity to kind of bring your article forward. But at the time, what you found is that what you thought was wrong with business ethics is that it was just being taught in a way in business schools that was too theoretical and too general and too philosophical and it just wasn't working. It wasn't practical enough. And so you um, concluded in your article that you thought the way for forward had to do more with moderation and pragmatism and minimalism. What did you mean by that? Well, those words were actually words that were used by business ethicists whose work I thought uh, was the way the field should be heading. Moderation was a term the philosopher Robert Solomon used to talk about um, virtues that managers should have that would allow them to moderate between different conflicting interests uh, that they had to deal with. Pragmatism was a term that uh, I think Greg Dees um, and uh, Roger Crampton used to talk about uh, the need for business uh, people to mix um, uh, unself-interested and self-interested motivations in their business dealings and how to do that in a, in a sophisticated way. And minimalism was the term that Tom Donaldson and Tom Dunphy themselves used to describe their important work on uh, trying to determine what kinds of norms universally apply, min minimal norms that everybody has to or should abide by in business mm -hmm. and distinguish them from norms that are not um, uh, required of every business, but that might vary across businesses. So I borrowed those terms from the work of actual uh, of ethicists who were, were doing work that I was trying to suggest would, would be helpful if there were more of. Yeah, yeah. So, so what do you think? Have there been advancements along the lines that you uh, uh, we're concluding through the eyes and, and, and writing and thoughts of others. Do you think we've advanced the field in that way uh, or in different ways in the past 25 years? Well, the, I'll focus on one thing. And I, I say this because I've noticed that some of the other um, uh, folks that you've talked to have, have focused on this. And it's something I focused on in the article. And it's uh, you know one way to think of business ethics. It's certainly not the only way, but one way to think of it is that it focuses on two kinds of issues. One is the kind of issue that arises. Laura Nash, who I quoted, calls it the acute dilemma, where it's not clear what the right thing to do is. Uh -huh. um, the right, it's, you know, every option you have seems to come with something, some difficulty or moral problem. Yeah. And um, uh, the, the acute rationalization is the other issue. And that's where you know what the right thing to do is but you're, you face institutional pressures and incentives that make it, that are giving, that are making it difficult for you to do the right thing. And I think look, thinking of those as central questions for the field is helpful. My observation would be that the way ideally to deal with um, acute dilemmas where you don't know what the right thing to do is, is you'd have business ethicists using moral reasoning to show us how to navigate difficult and complex moral issues. And the way to deal with um, uh, acute um, rationalizations where you know what the right thing is, but feel pressured to, to not do it, 
is for business ethicists to suggest procedures and norms and ways of structuring organizational life to mitigate those pressures. What I would say has happened in the field is almost the reverse. When talking about acute um, dilemmas where it's not clear what the right thing to do is, there's a lot of business ethics literature on procedures for how you might determine what the right thing to do is. Mm. Get the stakeholders together, mm -hmm. uh, make sure you listen properly, um, uh, under, try and create a, a space for dialogue that is unencumbered. Great procedures, but there's not much real, there's, where's the beef is, I guess, my question in terms of uh, moral arguments and reasoning that will help us with those dilemmas. Meanwhile, when it comes to acute rationalizations where we would like to have uh, procedures designed that uh, mitigate the temptation to do the wrong thing when the right thing is clear, we tend to have writing that uses moral reasoning to remind us that what the person was doing really was wrong and really, you know, this, this was a terrible thing to do. And we know that already. Uh, but what we want to do is, to, so we know that, uh, that what Volkswagen leadership did, we know what right. Ken Lay did was wrong. What we want to know is how to design organizations so that that doesn't happen in the future, what procedures right. we should have. But instead, a lot of business ethics writing is moral argument showing us that it's wrong. So we, I think if I can, it's, if I can put it this way, we, we're asking the right questions, but in some ways we're reversing the way in which we ought to be dealing with them, talking about acute dilemmas in a procedural way and acute rationalizations in a substantive moral argumentative way when we should be doing the reverse. Yeah, how interesting. Well, so, so let me ask you this, since you're at the uh, University of Toronto, what about um, the understanding of, of business ethics generally? Is it, do you find that it's understood the same way and we come at it from the you know with the same lens in place in the u.s versus kind of outside the u.s what are your thoughts I, I think i think largely so i mean canadian political culture is a little different from from american political culture and i think and also from european political culture significantly mm -hmm. and i think the question you're asking goes to something that i think dirk Matten uh, has written about and spoken about uh which is um the debate over uh, the boundary between what businesses should be doing on their own in terms of social responsibility uh -huh. and what government should be um, compelling them to do through law and regulation. And I'm, what's interesting to me about that particular debate is not so much uh, the, the differences across countries, it's the way in which the politics of it has changed. So by that I mean, maybe 20 or 30 years ago, people who were advocating corporate social responsibility were generally progressives. They were people on, on, on the left who wanted corporations to take into account environmental issues, health and safety issues, human rights issues in a way in which they weren't. Now, uh, a lot of people who are advancing the view that uh, uh, corporate social responsibility are actually business people themselves who think government doesn't handle social problems as well as they could uh -huh. and who are, um, uh, taking it upon themselves in various ways to um, address social problems. And they are being resisted, uh, interestingly, by, to some extent, by people on the left who don't want businesses to determine, you know, what, how uh, our public schools should be run, 
uh, how uh, environmental policy should be termed. They want the government to do that because the government represents all of it. And interestingly, they are allied with people on the right, like Milton Friedman of years ago, who thought if we're gonna have social responsibility, it's gotta come from the government. The government sets the level playing field oh. that we all have to abide by. Business people are not experts in what uh, should be done uh, in terms of um, social responsibility. They, they, don't, they shouldn't have any social responsibility. Government should decide what all those things and enforce it if it wants to. So interesting to me is that the, those who are advocating for a larger space for business or corporate social responsibility now are on both the right and the left. And those who are pushing back and saying it's, no, it's government should take more of a role are also both on the right and the left. And to me, how they sort that out over time is gonna be interesting to watch. I would agree that, and that kind of leads right into the next question, which is which is which is tied a little bit to to uh, your answer here. Um, so, a little over a year ago, the Business Roundtable um, here in the United States put out a new statement uh, on what they viewed as the purpose of a corporation, and had 181 of the you know U.S.'s largest uh, corporations, many of which are global, sign on to that, and they hadn't changed that statement for 22 years. You know, it had been the primary purpose of a corporation is to serve the shareholders' interests. And then a little over a year ago, they changed it in 19, 2019, to say, uh, actually, the purpose of a corporation is to serve all of the stakeholders and sort of adopted that stakeholder um, uh, mentality and approach and, and said a corporation should focus on not just shareholders, but also employees and communities and all of the stakeholders they, they serve, including dealing ethically with suppliers. And so completely like 180 degree difference. What do you, what do you think about how that ties into uh, your description um, of how the, the politics, if you will, of um, kind of stakeholder capitalism has changed with people on both sides? What impact do you think that new statement has had from the business roundtable? I think it's been helpful and certainly stakeholder theory has been a great contribution um, of business ethics and business ethicists over, over the past uh, uh, 20 years or so. I look at it in, uh, and I did this to some extent in the article, in comparative terms and by comparative I mean, I think it's, a, it's always a good idea for business ethicists to keep an eye on how legal ethicists and uh, government ethicists and medical ethicists are handling their fields because that can be constructive. Yes. So I'll respond to that, that question in, in this light. And I guess, you know, when we talk about suppliers and consumers and shareholders and competitors and employees, you know, major stakeholder groups, what I think we should bear in mind is how um, unique that is compared to the other professional fields. In medicine, for example, doctors run into ethical issues dealing with suppliers, drug companies, mm -hmm. but lawyers and government officials don't have the same kinds of problems with suppliers. When it comes to employees, obviously government has employees. It's a large, large organization like businesses. They have whistleblower issues just like businesses do, but lawyers and doctors don't really operate in the same kind of large organizations with the same kinds of issues. Uh, when it comes to competitors, a lot of legal ethics talks about um, how we should deal with, uh, how lawyers should deal with their adversaries. 
and obviously a lot of business ethics has to do with how to deal with competitors and treat them in a fair way. But of course, um, bureaucrats and doctors don't have competitors in that way. At all three of those other professions, the consumer is also the principal uh, to whom the professional owes a fiduciary duty. Right. The patient is both the consumer and the principal, the citizen for the government, um, the bureaucrat, and the client for the lawyer. But in business, of course, the two are different. Shareholders are the, the so-called fiduciary um, bearers of the, 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 the objects of the fiduciary responsibility of managers, whereas consumers are yet another group. So my point is that what business ethicists face is hugely more complicated and difficult in trying to reconcile the ethical issues of their profession than any other profession. And what that suggests to me is that while the stakeholder approach is very important, uh, it's also, it's also presents enormous intellectual challenges. And, I, I, and when I say I'm not sure how far we've advanced along that road, it's not meant as a criticism of um, those trying to advance us. It's meant simply as a caution that it's difficult and our aims may have to be moderated as to what we can do in that area. Um, also, it might be useful to look at how these other professional areas have dealt with some of the issues individually that we yeah. all have to face in business ethics collectively. Right. But I would just put that out there as, as sort of my, my sense of stakeholder issues. That is so interesting to think about it in that way that you just described of having kind of the end user consumer also being the fiduciary, if you will, the, the principal uh, in some of those situations like doctor patient. Um, but you're right when you when you get into the business arena, most of those are different sometimes. Sure. Sometimes I, what I said was a general statement. A general, you can, yeah. You'll find yeah. you can quibble with it on specifics, but I think it, it has yeah. some general merit. Yeah. So how do you, and how, how do you, when you think about it that way in general terms, how do you think that affects the outcome of, um, and the application of a stakeholder theory? Well, I, I think what it suggests is that it's, it's, uh, difficult and, and we should, we should recognize that and, uh, um, proceed with caution and slowly or not slowly slowly may not be the right word but we should we should we should acknowledge that we that we face in this field um, complexities that are are more significant than any other professional ethics ethics field yeah uh, and that uh, you know I I, I what, what I'll just veer off on a slight tangent here one of the things that I've often wondered about is why we have a lot of moral philosophers in the, in the field of business ethics. Uh -huh. We don't have a lot of political philosophers in the uh -huh. field right. of business ethics. Yeah. And yet right. these issues are issues of political philosophy as much as moral philosophy. Uh, the language that we use to talk about them, you know, representation and, and, and dialogue and um, uh, interests and uh, so forth, are all terms that political philosophers have dealt with over time. So I've often wondered uh, whether um, the field uh, could benefit from um, an injection of political theory into its um, analysis, in addition to the you know, 
very helpful moral philosophy that it's typically draws upon. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I would say it, 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 it's probably a caution to not draw um, the comparison too closely between, you know, doctors mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. uh, and government yeah. because the ethics are just different. So the analogy can only yeah. go so far, actually. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So, so thinking about the whole field of business ethics then and, and bringing it back to that, which if you said is more complex in some respects than the others, mm -hmm. what do you think is the future um, of business ethics in terms of where the education of it needs to go? Well, I, I think some of your other um, uh, interviewees have made some great suggestions along those lines. So instead of repeating them, I will just add a, a new one. Uh, and that is we have seen, uh, we've had a summer in which the use of, of the market sphere for political and moral purposes has, has um, exploded in a way that we haven't seen for a long time. Yes. What I mean by that is, you know, uh, people are boycotting Goya foods because the CEO uh, said something favorable about Donald Trump. Facebook employees are using their positions as employees to um, critique uh, the the man, management's own um, political uh, decisions. Um, uh, columnists are leaving uh, newspapers where they think the political environment has been hostile and consumers are pressure, uh, readers have pressured those publications to, uh, to um, get rid of them. Uh, the Colin Kaepernick uh, kinds of issues. Um, the, the, the Washington football team issues that arose where there were the um, concerns that for a very long time there were companies that had, part, that had participated or individuals who had participated in the ownership of that, uh, of, of the Washington football team who did not, um, you know, use their market clout to make a political change. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we could go on and on. Uh, I, I think this is a very rich field for um, business ethicists to help us sort out. You know, for example, is, it sim is, there a, uh, is there a difference between uh, consumers who boycott a company because they don't like the stand taken by its CEO, as in Goya, and, cons and consumers who boycott a company because they want a particular individual employee to be fired? Mm. I think that there probably is. Um, is there a difference between a company that wants to part ways with an employee because it doesn't want to be associated with his or her politics? You know, think of Fox News um, firing, um, I think the man's name was Blake Neff because of his offensive tweets versus a company that, or, a, or, an, or a, a, an economic entity, business entity that even after an employee has left, takes action meant to silence his political expression. And I'm thinking of Colin Kaepernick, who you know, was let go by um, the 49ers, but then found himself arguably, I mean, this is, a, this is a contestable thing, but I think arguably blacklisted even after he left mm -hmm. uh, for continuing his political. So I think there's a difference. So I think we, you know, we, we have some terrain here yeah, in addition to some of the other stuff that you've, that your other, wow. um, guests have discussed 
right. to get into. Yeah, the COVID-19 situation combined with the racial tension that's really at a peak, not just here in the U.S., but has even gained traction around the world, is has really created some mm -hmm. rich uh, uh, fodder, I would say, for, for ethicists, particularly when you combine that with the empowerment that individuals now have through the use of digital media, um, social or otherwise. So yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a good add, what you just threw in there. So if you had three words or three phrases, is what I try to ask everybody to, um, to kind of describe the future of business ethics. I, and I got that, of course, because you used three words in your past article to describe what you thought the future should be. So if that was, I call it ethics 1.0, when you wrote the article, you know, 25 years ago, and if we're now at ethics 2.0, and we've advanced in many ways, behavioral ethics being one of them, which has come mm -hmm. onto the scene and, um, uh, Mary Gentile's approach, of course, for, you know, thinking about what do I do? And I already think I know what's right. What do you think, uh, Andy, are the best words to describe ethics 3.0, where we need to go in the future for the next 25 years? Well, I'm going to be a bit retrograde, uh, but I, I will um, uh, refer to the three critiques that I made about business ethics. They were controversial. Not everybody accepted them at, at that time. And it's still, I think, a subject of some debate. But in any event, one of those critiques was that um, business ethicists were too theoretical. They, um, uh, they overloaded their writings with theoretical moral theory, deontology, utilitarianism in ways that was not necessarily helpful often seem more like attempts to vindicate a particular moral theory by showing how it applied to a particular business situation than to illuminate the moral complexities of the situation. So one of the words I would use instead of theoretical is analytical. And that may not be the best word, but when yeah. I say it, I think of work like um, Tom Donaldson's stuff on um, the ethics of international business, where he provided a very neat analytical framework uh, having to do with uh, conflicts of economic stages between different company, countries that a multinational may be operating in and conflicts of cultural development. Right. And, he used, and, and, and there was no overlay of moral theory in that at all. He derived those morally helpful categories from actual practice, mm -hmm. and but it was analytical. It wasn't. It wasn't. It was. It was very sharp, and it drew distinctions. It was not, you know, fuzzy, etc. So I guess analytical would be one word. I suggested that uh, some some work in business ethics was too impractical. So practical would be <laughs> a word I would I would use. And again, I'll yes. since I'm a, a big fan of Tom, I'll suggest that. That the work I just discussed was a good example of something that was practical because a manager could read that article and read that work and understand what to do. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it provided a pretty uh, user-friendly way of thinking about what uh, you should do if you're faced with, um, uh, if you're a multinational, your home country has a certain view of uh, gender equity or um, bribery, um, and the country that you are doing business in has a different view, um, and uh, it was very user-friendly. 
And I think my, my uh, final uh, suggestion was that business ethics ethicists were writing it too general. Right. And by that, I meant that they were talking about systemic changes um, to capitalism, the market system, right. to an extent that you wouldn't find in other in, in some other uh, professional ethics fields Got it. where the ethicists are sort of working within the existing, not that there's anything wrong at all with critiquing capitalism, but it may not be as helpful to managers as something that was more. So I guess instead of general, I would use the word pluralistic. And again, by that, I mean, and I'm, you know, I'm gonna refer to Tom Donaldson yet again, but there are others who are doing this as well. What that suggests is looking at uh, business as an ecology of pluralistic entities, some of which should be motivated more by the profit motive than others. Uh, and that, that that's a good thing because they work together in an ecology to uh, provide a, an optimum uh, social and economic, social and economic well-being. And that, that uh, we should get into the fine weeds of different kinds of businesses and try and help them within their, their situations to figure out where they fit in that ecology and how uh, to weigh off uh, the business versus you know, social imperatives that that particular business might have instead of talking in a general way Got it. about all businesses. Yeah, so analytical, practical, and pluralistic. Well, I like yes. it. I like it. That's the, that's, that's, that's great. I was waiting to hear what you would have to say on that question. <laughs> that's great. So this has been a fun conversation, Andy, very eye-opening and I've, I've appreciated you sharing your thoughts with us. And I always like to end with a couple of fun questions. So we've, we've all during this period of COVID when we're, we're in this uh, a time of a lot of time that we find that we need to be doing more reading or watching something or, you know, just some downtime. What have you been reading or watching or listening to for fun? Uh, but that also has a bit of a ethical dilemma to it. Well, reading, I'll, I'll mention one, I wouldn't necessarily call it for fun, but it wasn't, it wasn't a fun read, but it was for, for work. And it's, it's something that I was blown away by. Uh, it's, a, it's a book called The Sunflower, and it was written by Simon Weisenthal, who was, the, um, who was a prominent um, pursuer of, of Nazis to bring them to justice after World War II. Uh -huh. And the book is about his experience uh, during the war when, uh, toward the end of the war, a German soldier, he was called by a wounded German soldier who was dying into his room. And the soldier asked Weisenthal for forgiveness. Uh, he wanted Weisenthal to forgive him on behalf of the Jewish people for his part in the Holocaust and in, in what had happened. And Weisenthal presents this, it's beautifully written as a moral dilemma. And at the end, he decides that he can't do that. He can't grant that forgiveness. It's not his, his place to grant it uh, and doesn't. And then the book, and I'm, I assume that the book is always uh, issued this way, is followed by small essays on the, that moral question by an unbelievable array of people, Primo Levi, uh, Desmond Tutu, um, 
Abraham Joshua Heschel, incredible moral figures of the late 20th century, Arthur Hertzberg, who, who then asked themselves, well, was, was that the right thing to do? Ah. And, and it's, it's, it's really a, a beautiful, moving, and uh, intellectually um, challenging yeah. uh, work as a whole when you take uh, Weisenthal's book, it's a short book, and the commentary together. Oh, I love that suggestion. I'm going to add that to my list. All right. Well, this has been fantastic. Um, and I have enjoyed the conversation with you very much. And uh, it's just been wonderful to have you participate in this and continue the conversation about the future of business ethics, which I think is here to stay. And everybody recognizes that now. It's about how the field is going to evolve. And you've, you've really added some great thoughts there. So Andy, thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you, Cindy. I've enjoyed it very much. You bet. All right. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to today's episode of The Biz, the Business Integrity School. You can find us on YouTube, Google SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever you find your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and rate us. And you can find us by searching The Biz. That's one word, T-H-E-B-I-S. Tune in next time for more practical tips from a pro.